Hello and welcome to Long Range Sensors, the Star Trek retrospective show where we take a detailed look at an old episode from the final frontier. I'm Alastair and joining me as always is a man who knows how to cook a pot noodle using an interphasic coil spanner. It's Mr. Trevor Whale. Hello. 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 uh, This is going to be a good episode. It's been a while since we talked about Deep Space Nine. It is, yes. We do love a bit of Deep Space Nine. Probably my favourite Trek series, if you pin me down and force me to to answer that question. (laughs) Phaser point or Batleth point? I think you should gaffer tape one to the other. The (laughs) ultimate star for the ultimate Star Trek weapon. (laughs) Phaser mounted Batleth. Portable photon torpedo launcher or something, yeah. (laughs) Well, today... elite force. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today we're picking up a troubling conspiracy on our long-range sensors as we head into Deep Space Nine's Whispers from Season 2. Season 2, Episode 14. Wow, that is a crazy, uh, very early in Deep Space Nine. But yeah, can you believe it? A conspiracy-based Deep Space Nine episode. There are a few. Yeah. But this is a very interesting twist to that, I find. When we sort of were warming up before we hit the record button, we did sort of talk about the trope of, quote, O'Brien must suffer, end quote, episodes. (laughs) And this is actually one of the, probably the first examples. I mean, there also are O'Brien-themed episodes that have already happened. Mm. I would probably say... Well, you've got Vortex in season one, where uh, I think is O'Brien. I could be getting that wrong. There's one where he becomes mates with a with an alien that's getting hunted by other aliens. Um, I think that's yes. Vortex. And then earlier in this season, I forgot the names of the episodes, but you helped me out with that. There was Armageddon Game, which yeah, is which not is... strictly O'Brien. That was the episode prior to this one. Yeah. Wow. Well, so yeah, he's going. He, he, two episodes that have a heavy O'Brien bent in this one to sort of focus on him and develop his character. That's kind of cool. Mm. And then we had Sanctuary. Yeah. So that was another one where O'Brien, you know, had some uh, not a great experience. So that's all. And the three of them are in season two. So, and then from this point, really, when we got to season three, four, five, and six, it became like a season tradition where there'd be at least one O'Brien must suffer episode where he would go through a big traumatic adventure of some kind that would be completely focused on him. Yeah. So, yeah, this is one of the earliest, probably the first example where it's just him and it's him dealing with something, I think. So maybe this could be the first one. I do like that because he's married, it's basically like, let's just torment him at a, a torture level. Whereas with Kim, it's like, well, he's single, so we'll just have him be tortured, but by some female love interest. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but I think O'Brien gets the, the worst part of the bunt on this. Oh, absolutely. As Which is, you know, which is the trope, isn't it? The O'Brien must suffer. Um, it's probably yeah. one of the better ones. Yeah. When you look at some of the other ones, it actually might still be one of the better ones, even though there'd be very complex and dramatic stuff would happen to him later on. Very cool. Yeah, so, and we start on the runabout, the USS Rio Grande, as it enters the wormhole. And we've got, we're obviously coming into the middle of things because... O'Brien is trying to set course to the Parada system, and Parada has been in a state of civil war for a while. Since this whole journey there is going to take an hour, he starts recording a log entry where he's not even sure who's going to hear it, if he's even going to be alive by the time it's recovered. But he starts talking about this part of the puzzle that he's not figured out yet. He doesn't know who they are. 
that obviously this whole thing that's making zero sense to him. Yeah, I mean, we're in. Uh, so, so the system is. Uh, I, initially, I thought it was the Prada system, so some kind of system that produces very nice fashion bags and shoes and clothes <laughs> and stuff, um, which is what that'd be like to live on. Mm. But yeah, really, it's kind of confusing. You're thinking, as a bunch of it, as an episode already happened without us watching it. For a very cool teaser. Yeah. It's basically the end of the episode, as we would find out yeah. later on. And, and and then he starts talking about what has happened previously. So we, we get our flashback to him waking up on the station, and, and Keiko, his wife, is missing from her side of the bed. He then steps out, and he's surprised to see Keiko and Molly, his daughter, eating breakfast at 5.30 in the morning, and ends up ordering coffee, Jamaican blend, double strong, double sweet, a little bit more of a mouthful, than Earl Grey tea hot. What, what is it with the hot drinks in Star Trek? You know, mm. no one just has just normal tea. Tea, please. Yeah. It's always like, you know, Jamaican blend, dub, double strong, double sweet, tea Earl Grey hot, uh, ruptured genos, of course. Um, I mean, that's a whole episode of Short Range Sensors we should do, of like the, 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 the variants on coffee and, and tea that people have in Star Trek. No, nobody drinks soft drinks in the future. No. Like, what happened to Coke and Pepsi? They must exist, right? I mean, they're already old even by now. You know, they've already been around a couple of hundred years of pushing that. Is it just because Coke and Pepsi yeah. are there to make money and because there's no money, there's no drive for profit? So is that why brands like that just phase out? Don't the Ferengis have like a soft drink that people go nuts over that gets talked about in an episode of Deep Ooh. Space Nine? Someone buys shares in it like Grand Nagus or buys shares in a soft drink thing on, on Ferenginar. I cannot remember. So there is. So they have soft drinks. That would make sense. But yeah, you never really hear about... Um, it's soup. <laughs> yes. People eat a lot of soup. Um, and uh, Kirk has a chicken sandwich <laughs> uh, in an episode of the original series. And coffee, uh, again, with the coffee. And, and coffee, that's all people yeah. drink and eat. And later on, we do have a frickin' dough stew as well. Well, I don't know what that, what the hell that is, but yeah, it sounds great. It's it's like veal and um, uh, I think some form of salad of some sort, you know, or vegetables. Good lord! Uh, all I know is it's got veal in it. Quick, quick one yep. then. Very quick one. We're diverting a tiny bit from what we're doing. Favorite Star Trek food? Gah. I could tell you McGah. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Or or how about Troy cake? The, where she was like, it was her head and like the rest of it was a cake. Yeah, like se- Celia Peptide Cake. Celia Peptide Cake, yeah. <laughs> with with frosted icing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a great one. I think some of what Cisco makes is quite nice, like jambalaya and stuff and like gumbo. I like stews. So like jum- gumbo is basically a Jamaican sort of stew or an Africa. Mm-hmm. Is it Jamaican or African? I'm not sure. Not sure. But yeah, I like stews. Um, and um, O'Brien makes mashed potato with capers in it. For for Keiko in Data's day. Oh right, he does. Yeah, that looked, that, that that also looked quite. Although Keiko like hated it um, for some reason. Although in in a Voyager, this is the last one before we go. I promise we will go back to the actual stuff we need to talk about. <laughs> um, on on Voyager in the episode, um, I think it is. Oh, no, it's Meld Meld that we just talked talked about um, when yeah. um, Tom Paris is doing the. Uh, um, Betting on the solar, like background, not radiation bet, yeah, or whatever all the, it is. All the sweepstakes. The sweepstakes. Yeah. He says, and he wins all the replicator rations. Just what he's going to have, and he basically has a Sunday dinner with, like, um, he even mentions Yorkshire pudding. Yeah, um, which is quite interesting. Yeah. So that what, what he had was probably <laughs> your, your, the, the your best. favorite dish from all of Star Trek, Yorkshire pudding. Basically, just a yeah. 
Specifically, what the one Tom <laughs> Paris ordered with the trimmings that he had with it sounded freaking amazing. He needed like everybody's replicator rations to be able to produce that. So it's going to be epic. Well, we're going to have to continue on before I decide to break just to go have some food. <laughs> <laughs> Probably everybody listening as well. <laughs> yeah. Everybody just pause, go get the food, and then come back and, yes. and we'll continue on. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's the, the, the first time when this is all troubling, though within the episode is not the fact that Keiko has gotten up early. I mean, that's just weird behavior. Fine. But it's when he says to Molly, like, did you have sweet dreams, darling? She's like, go away. Yes. He's like, don't I deserve a kiss? No. Yeah. You know, the fact that his daughter is so adamant just not to have anything to do with him. And apparently just a phase. That's, that's not a phase. Well, that phase can mean many things in Star Trek. What, she's going out of phase um, or something? She didn't have to be a bit more specific, but yeah, very subtle. The next phase. Yeah, there's an episode, yeah. Yeah. Keiko very subtly acting a bit weird uh, as well, not being blatant. Obviously, you know, if you're a Trekkie and you're watching this, you might think, oh, yeah, aliens have taken over everybody's bodies or something. That might be where you would go. But perhaps you're probably not too... um, There's not... You're not given too much to chew on at the moment as to there being a major problem. There's just a, just an odd little family scene. Mm. So you're still not clear where this episode's going, really, at this stage, which yeah. is great. It's making you think what's going on and getting you invested. Yeah. Yeah, and, and she's reluctant to even leave Molly with him as well, which is the weird thing. Like it, almost, it, it seems less like, like we're not at the Invasion of the Body Snatchers style part of the episode yet. This is more kind of like, has he done something wrong? Yes. But he's not aware of, you know, it, it, it seems very kind just of... Just a normal life thing could have happened, not necessarily yeah. a big alien conspiracy or, or, or something. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And, and so then he goes to the security office where he's a little bit more high-strung because of all this. And Ensign DeCurtis is conducting repair work in there under the orders of Cisco, which is making O'Brien very angry because he wanted to wait for Odo to return before starting work on that. And so he goes off to speak to Cisco and sees him talking to Keiko outside the school. And he then hides as, as Cisco walks off, which is kind of like, okay, so he's obviously starting to think that there's something weird going on, but I still feel yeah, it's a yeah. bit too early to be sneaking around. Like, it's completely normal for, for that kind of conversation to be happening. But he, he's, he's a bit too paranoid, I think, at this point. Maybe, the, I think the writers probably thought they weren't giving the audience enough in terms of there's something wrong here. So they probably yeah. jumped the gun a little bit with that. It's not too jarring, but it is a bit weird, no, isn't it, in no. terms of how you yeah. know these people behave in a normal si- situation, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the other thing to think of is he got up at 5.30 in the morning and then his family acted weird against him. He's probably not in the best frame of mind. Yeah, that. and then there's not necessarily <laughs> just that what we saw might not have been the first example of, of weirdness happening around him as well. So you could kind yeah. of headcanon it a little bit to help to help out the belief in the episode, yeah. Yeah, and then we, we switch back to the present day when he's uh, about, I think it's 53 minutes away from Parada, and the USS Mekong is in pursuit, and he knows that they can't catch him at warp because there's another runabout, so it's the same warp speed that it's capable of. And yeah. this actually, just with you mentioning Armageddon game as the previous episode, that was introduced as a replacement for the USS Ganges, which was destroyed in that episode. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so this, this is a brand new runabout that they, they've got on the station. 
Yeah, and obviously we're at the point in Deep Space Nine where the runabouts are heavily used for anything outside of the station before we got the Defiant, which kind of killed off the, the runabouts a little bit. They were still there and they were used, but basically anything that you have to do away from the space station it has to be on, on a runabout. They're very cool space... Well, they're literally... Could, well, they're given like night proper like USS, you know, Rio Grande, Ganges, you know. So yeah. they're almost treated like a like an actual ship, an actual like they, starship. They are, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just a very small starship as opposed to being a very large shuttle. Yeah, and they've got you know um, decent warp capabilities and shields and well, I think regular shuttles have some of that stuff. But yeah, it's, it's basically like a camper van compared to a shuttlecraft <laughs> being just like a you know a car and a, and then a full blown starship. Van. Yeah, worthy of delegates. Exactly, and within you, you, you it has loads of places to sleep, and you know, probably a, a huge coach. You know, or, or, almost. Yeah, yeah, they're very yeah. cool. They're very cool, though. Yeah, it was it was nice seeing them in Next Generation as well. Yeah, I think a couple of times. Very I think. Or, yeah, just very briefly. Appeared. Yeah, yeah, but he's he's speaking through his log, and he starts mentioning about how he thinks that they're just trying to pull off one of those surprise parties that he can't stand. And that has always been one of those things that there's always a surprise party going on. And people hate them. People, yeah, Worf especially. <laughs> I, th- I think that Star Trek kind of taught me that surprise parties are just, there's too much that could go wrong there. Yeah. You could end up in a, in a parallel universe, well, you know. Yeah, you can never have a surprise party in isolation in Star Trek. It, there's always no. going to be some kind of um, dramatic adventure that people have to go on as part of it. Yeah. So best best avoided. Uh, I mean, Worf ended up in a, several parallel universes after his surprise <laughs> party. Um, we're going to see what's going to happen to it. Well, Brian suspects there might be one. Um, yeah. So yeah, it never it never ends well when there is one in Star Trek. Yeah. Unfortunately, then we end up with Bashir confronting him, and this isn't going to be the the first time that we have Bashir trying to force people to have their medical. I mean. That's kind of a trope of all the doctors on Star Trek. I think at some point they've had to force somebody to to have theirs. But Cisco pretty much not just insists but forces O'Brien to take it. Just saying that there's a medical report due next week and they've all had to do it. And it's like, well, that's fine. That's that's understandable. Very out of the blue. Very out of the yeah. blue. But um yeah, you could probably say, well, you know, maybe it's out of the blue in the normal situation of these things coming up. So but still a bit weird. Yeah. It's really getting weird now. Things are getting weird. Yeah. And if anything, it just kind of seems like O'Brien might be overreacting. Like As an audience member, you're kind of looking, is there things weird going on or is he overreacting? Because it's a very fine line that the other characters are toying on. Because as he goes in to talk to Cisco, Cisco apologizes for having DeCurtis do all the work in Odo's office without consulting him. Yeah. And saying, like, I guess I dropped the ball on that one. And physically drops his uh, his baseball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like like you said already, like with the medical examination, it's already a bit of a trope in Star Trek where no one ever yeah. wants them wants to do it, and the doctor's got to order them, which I always find is a bit silly. I mean, it's just hey, what is it now? It's you're getting scanned, you know. Um, okay, we see Captain Kirk has to do a weird CrossFit thing while lying down <laughs> in the original series, and then do a huge like tr- like yeah. you know training session really. Which, which you know, we got an amusing scene in that example, mm. but um, but yeah, often we know when someone is told they have to have a medical thing, it often means there's something more going on as well. Um, again, yeah. from what we've seen in pre in prior Star Trek stuff, so yes, yeah, yeah the stakes are escalating. Yeah, at this I point. think Cisco's being completely fair with with everything at this point, and he he seems very forward. 
he doesn't feel like he's hiding things. But then he does start to ask about O'Brien's reports on the Paradas and if there's anything that he didn't mention in the report that might help him join the peace talks. Yeah. Again, completely fine. And uh, O'Brien kind of mentions that they have an odor from some kind of skin excretion, which changes with their moods and that they <laughs> get really strong when they get upset. <laughs> so I'm kind of thinking like, do they not have divorce on Parada? <laughs> Is that something that they just outright uh, try to avoid? Perhaps marriages are very, uh, if not happy, maybe they just kind of avoid just upsetting people. Don't Prada make perfumes and like deodorants? <laughs> so, you know. Yes. <laughs> that explains to... that then. <laughs> <laughs> well, to Paul we used to say a human smell really bad. Yeah. Um, and she had to take some kind of like like drug that stops her, that reduces her <laughs> nasal sensitivity. Although later on she says, oh, I just got used to your smell. But then there, there was yeah. a whole thing, wasn't there, where she's actually part Romulan, which is why she's able to put up with that more or something. But we never that never gets established in canon. But yeah, sm- things smelling is, is is also a thing in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we find out that all three upper pylons are down, which frustrates O'Brien because he just rebuilt the entire subsystem there, and he wants to get going, but obviously he has to do it after his physical. And this is when he ends up bringing up the conversation with Keiko. And it turns out that Jake's just having issues with his grades, which seems innocent enough. But as he leaves, there's an odd pause and just the music tonal shift changes and suggests otherwise. Yeah. You're really kind of pushing the, there's something going on. You're being manipulated a little bit there to feel a certain way. I know you've got to do that to a degree, but it's probably fairly clear now that there's something serious has happened on the space station. And again, your your Star Trek brain will probably go to they're all been taken over by aliens, which is probably what they want yeah. you to think at this stage, I think, the writers. And that works. That 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 really works when we get to the end and we know what really is, is happening. Yeah. But yeah, you're really being manipulated into the feeling that way at, at this point in time. I do love the banter in sickbay where O'Brien just hates being poked and prodded and this is still very early on in the Bashir and O'Brien relationship. It really got yeah, established then, in the prior episode, I would say. Yeah, yeah. They don't reference that here, uh, but yeah, that's probably where it started. That's right, yeah, just kind of getting into that whole bromance that they would have later on in the series. I think they actively dis. Uh, well, O'Brien kind of disliked Bashir up to yeah. kind of about the third season. Probably. I wouldn't say like dislike yeah. like hated him, but just like found him a bit obnoxious and, and a bit over the top and kind of didn't really want to spend time with him. Um and, and he makes yeah. that very clear right here. Yeah. As well. And Bashir playfully just sort of says about how his short tempo is normal behaviour for him for being that yeah. way. And and says like, Well, your your sense of humor seems normal enough. Yeah. And Dubai's yeah. like, I don't have a sense of humor. Yeah. How's your sex life? <laughs> you know, it's like I don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great little line, yeah. I know. Deep Space Nine's great at these. Uh I mean I I always say Deep Space Nine does the best comedic episodes as well. Yeah. But it's also great to see that obviously, you know, Bashir and O'Brien's probably the, the apart from Spock and Kirk, he's probably the greatest bromance in all of Star Trek, um, to the point where, you know, Bashir says, "Well, I think you, I think you prefer me to your wife," and O'Brien doesn't deny that. Um, so, so yeah, yeah it, it's um, the start of the banter, perhaps here. You know, although we find out later that isn't really the case based on what we know what happens. But um, yeah, the writers are still establishing that these are potentially two characters that will get on. I, I think they were enthused by what happened in Armageddon Game and thought these guys probably have the actors have chemistry. 
So we probably should try and make them appear together more often. And I think it just organically yeah. happened through the series. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. But it's interesting that even though they've got that, that close friendship later on, Julian has forgotten O'Brien's mother had died and that his father would be married to a woman that, that O'Brien had never met before. And, and that sort of sets things off as to like, you know, one of those body snatcher things where it's like, do they not have all the memories? And especially as the physical is taking longer than one he's ever had before. But that's when something twigs and he starts to think that maybe there's something wrong with him. Maybe he's dying. But yeah, Bashir just says, well, relax, I'm giving you a clean bill of health. Yeah. So it's like, what, what was what was happening then? You don't even know. You know, it's not like they were trying to use the medical to try and push him away from things even further. It's just like, no, you're fine. You can go and continue on. It further establishes that this physical was obviously there was more to it than than just a basic, yeah. straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he heads out onto the promenade, and Jake runs up to him and asks him for advice on a subspace transceiver for his school science project, which O'Brien's more than happy to help to get Jake's grades up. And Jake's like, oh, but my grades are great. I just want to keep them that way. So Cisco's a liar. Yeah, this is getting like, um, <laughs> you're starting to dislike, like you, you're starting to think that there's there's clearly some kind of a conspiracy now at this point. And um, mm. something has happened since O'Brien's been away. So, uh, and it's painting, the characters are clearly getting painted as being all, like, all in on it at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. Very dishonest. But apparently telling the truth about the pylons, because they are... Yeah, yeah, still not working. You can't mess around with the pylons, so yeah, no, you have to be right no, about that. And the pressure locks he installed are working fine, so there's obviously a new problem that's there, and he knows that those repairs are complicated enough to keep him occupied while all the security arrangements for the paradas are underway. I mean, going up to O'Brien saying, can you fix my pylon? It's probably a great line to be able to deliver to someone. How about all my pylons? My pylons are broken, can you fix them? Yeah. Deep Space Island's a lovely set of pylons as well. Yeah, and specifically the upper pylons. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I, I like the lower ones. The lower ones are fine. You can't beat a lower pylon. Yeah, the yeah. lower pylons are absolutely fine. It's the upper pylons that he's having problems with. The best pylons in all of Star Trek, I would say. <laughs> Which is not, you know, you don't say that lightly. Yeah. <laughs> then he takes a break from the pylons to check on the progress of Decurtis and the security preparations for the Paradis Quarters. And there's a security seal in place that only Kira has access to. So he's frustrated with Cisco that he'd spent the entire last week preparing all these security arrangements and messages him. And Cisco insists that the pylons are his priority. And Kira refuses to unlock the doors as well. And so O'Brien walks off, but then peeks around the corner and watches as DeCurtis unlocks the door and goes in. So he's also a liar. There's, there's just liars everywhere. Yeah, you, uh, at this point, it's clear that you probably can't trust anybody on the entire station, no. which is kind of scary. Um, and yeah. the stakes are, can't be any bigger, really, at this stage. Um, and what is, and you're not really getting any indication of if there's an alien like anywhere. It's yeah. kind of like conundrum in, in in TNG. Although there is at least an extra random character in that that's clear might be behind the whole thing. There is you're not you're not given any of that in this. There's no apart from the behaviour of the crew. There's nothing else to really give you any kind of a hint as to what might be happening, which is great. Yeah. Really make it keeps you engaged. <laughs> yeah. The next scene is the one that I think everybody can relate to when it comes to feeling old because Jake shows up with an inverter that he's replicated from a really old data file. And O'Brien laughs at that because that, that's what he kind of had when he was younger. 
And so it's now been described as a really old data file. And we all feel this way when we show something that we kind of grew up with. You know, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago we had them and kids are like, that's ancient. It's like, like watching the Kids React series on YouTube. Yeah, like watching like what you like 90s Star Trek toys or something. <laughs> kids growing <laughs> up on like Discovery now and like they'll look at Deep Space Nine and TNG as like, you know, um, campy 90s TV shows. Yeah. Which is horrifying to us, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that might be how it's seen now. Yeah. Kira shows up again. We don't see much of Kira. In fact, we, we also see even less of Dax in this episode. I think it's just a voiceover in, in it, but... No, that's a good point. ...few appearances Kira has. Like, she's coming in telling Jake that his father's looking for him right when O'Brien is trying to find out if there's been anything that's unusual that's happened on the station. I, th- I think he just feels that if he can't trust the senior officers, then at least he can trust Jake. Yes, and there's, they're clearly like trying to make sure that Jake has no contact with him now. Yeah. So, yeah, very creepy. And they're very on the ball. They're very quick to respond to all this. So he's clearly being monitored constantly, yeah. perhaps, so they can jump yeah. in if they feel something, you know, to do whatever it is they need to do. Yeah. He then finds, he goes back to the, the pylons, and he finds that there's a giant crack in the pylons, if that, well, in the power conduit specifically that it's something that would have been deliberately damaged. So there's obviously been sabotage. And he, he heads home, and Keiko says that Jake can't come over because he's not feeling well, and that Molly is over at the Fredericksons to spend the night. So at first he's kind of like, oh, that's weird. And then, you know, realizes he's, he's, he's got the night alone with his wife. You know, so it's just, just the two of them. It's going to be fun. <laughs> but Keiko's keeping a distance. Yeah. And it's a really awkward kiss that they have, and she's obviously not wanting things and just saying that she's just not in the mood and she's had a hard day too well but she's just like she looks at him you know while they're doing yeah. it which is a, a very weird thing to do uh yeah yeah that says everything it's, it's one of those things where to not be in the mood if you've had a hard day like that's fine but yeah it's the way she looks at him yeah you know that it's it's way way more than that yeah and then this is the fracando stew scene that we referred to earlier because that's his favorite food Although I don't think we've ever seen him have it before, and I don't think we see him have it again. I don't think any of like o- uh, O'Brien's sort of personal preferences in sort of things like food and drink had been established. So we had that. No. We had Data's Day, where there's yeah. sort of a couple of nice fa- family scenes between Keiko and uh, uh, O'Brien. In that, um, mm. there's not really been that much in Deep Space Nine up to this point, um, really yeah. between them in terms of family home sort of moments. I mean, we only just find out that his birthday's in September. Yeah. At this point, you know, so they're, they're, they're throwing the in a me. few little details. Yeah. You're getting a lot of backstory to O'Brien here at the same time. Little nuggets yeah. of things that just add color to his character that hadn't been established yeah. before. Yeah. It's nice. And, and like, he loves it. She hates this food as well. She, it's not a meal that she likes, and she's not having any of it. She's like, I've had a late lunch, and she only wants a salad. And so his immediate reaction is, is she poisoning me? Yes. Like, he's really not sure if it's going to be death by veal for him today. <laughs> and Which is not something we've seen in Star Trek before, if that was the case. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, it's like when you think about all the ways that you know how to kill somebody just because you've seen it in a movie or on TV. Death by veal isn't really high on the list. It's not typical. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he can't even check later afterwards because he's already put it in the disposal. So he can't even investigate to see if he was going to be poisoned at all. 
But it just goes to show that O'Brien is now very paranoid. Yeah. Um, and he's had so many weird... There's been, I mean, again, there's there's a lot of breadcrumbs that have been thrown at us, but none, nothing really adds up really to anything, apart from just invisible alien has taken over everybody's bodies. That's the only real sort of conclusion you could come to as a, as, as a viewer and Chief O'Brien himself, really, yeah. Yeah, and even in his log entry at this point, he's saying, this was not my Keiko. Yes. And then we switch back to, to present day, and everyone in 1994 who wasn't watching this on the BBC are coming back from their commercial break. So he asks to play best the last sentence, where he's saying, this was not my Keiko, and he's like, you're right, she wasn't. But for us, in the modern day of streaming, and certainly back when we watched it on the BBC, it was just a straight like repeat of the line, back to back. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, in, in in the context of what he's doing, is he's so kind of shocked that he said that. I think he just has yeah. to sort of play it back to himself to sort of realize that it's something that's happening yeah. uh, to him. So, yeah, it does kind of make sense for him to want to do that. It's a scary thought that your own wife yeah. or husband or whoever, you know, is, uh, is not, <laughs> it's not just like they're, they're just behaving wrong. It's like that definitely is not that person. It's probably the worst thing out of all the things that are happening to him at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. It's something that's, that's affecting his wife as well, yeah. Yeah, my commanding officer can be taken. As a, but it also begs the question, like, does that mean that Molly's been taken as well? Or she's just been manipulated? Who knows? Yeah. That would be the, the concern in the back of your head. Yes, he would probably be thinking that already at this stage, I would say. Yeah, so he, he starts his investigation and he starts having a look and uh, the computer's confirming that there's no microorganisms, there's no chemical agents... And then he accesses the internal EM sensor grid. And I find this interesting because that sensor grid is able to find that there's no subharmonic transmissions. There's no unusual neural wave patterns and no telepathic activity. So the sensors on the station can even detect when there's something telepathic happening. Yeah, I mean, how, how, how would it even detect that? What are these sensors tuned to? Yeah. I'm sure there is something tangible that telepathic activity produces, you know, some kind of chemicals in the air or some, like, you know, factor in the air that, that you could pick up. But it'd be interesting to sort of get some kind of explanation for that as to what that actually looks like to, to try and detect that stuff, which means you can, like... Well, well we do know that uh, you can switch off telepathic in, in MELD. Again, I've referenced that episode again. In MELD, um, they, they turn off Tuvox tele telepathic abilities. Yeah, they can kind of inhibit it, yeah. It, or inhibit it, yeah. So they clearly know how to sort of manipulate that stuff. So I guess this is kind of, well, this episode would have been filmed uh, uh, before that. I mean, from a plot point, they're just ruling out everything that it could be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have to. Re re and it also, it basically rules out a lot of what your own suspicions as, as, a, as a viewer would, would be. Like I said, you know, being, being manipulated by aliens. That kind of kills all of that straight away. Yeah. But it also suggests that telepathy is, you know, creates an electromagnetic field if it's an EM sensor grid that's picking it up. Yeah. There's some kind of quite typical and standard te technological stuff happening with a telepathic thing then, really, which kind of doesn't make it sound that sort of m mystical or magical, which telepathy tends to be portrayed as, yeah. Yeah, and of course, if we go and ask Michael Acuda how it works, he'll just say, very well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> his, yeah. his normal answer <laughs> for, for these kind of questions. <laughs> exactly. But there's also been no ships arriving. Uh, he orders his Jamaican coffee again. His very long-winded beverage of choice. Yes. And then searches the logs. And I like that it gives an option for vocal or written logs as well. 
and he's just going for the vocal ones, which is a lot easier for us as an audience to appreciate it. Miles, thank you. Yeah, um, written log would be a bit rubbish in a TV, uh, TV show, yeah. Yeah. And then, it also reminds me sure how much admin these guys have, have to do. Do you have to, I mean, not, I'm just not clear yeah. on when you would make a log if you've got guidelines on, if you've got to do four of them a day or just one, or depending on the situation you're in, there's a particular guidance you have to follow. Um, that's never really been made clear in any Star Trek, um, I don't think. Yeah. Really. And there's obviously security levels for these as well, because he, he's locked out. He, he's told that he needs level one security clearance. He's like, I am level one. He's still locked out. Yeah, if you're trying to sort of like block O'Brien, he's not a great person to block from doing things, really, because <laughs> he has so much knowledge of the station. Um, he's If it was some random security officer, that they probably wouldn't be able to sort of, you know, there isn't much, they wouldn't know anything about the computer systems necessarily, so they wouldn't... Yeah. Um, you know, it would be easier to lock someone like that out. They wouldn't become suspicious of being locked out. But O'Brien is not a great person to do that with because of his knowledge of the station. Yeah. And it only raises his suspicions more. That's it. And he just immediately starts working on breaking that security lockout. And Dakota's just asks if he needs any help with anything, obviously kind of checking in. And he's just like, no, I'm just working on the pylons. Yeah. And then it's weird because Dakota says, you're an inspiration to us all. He's doing his job... It's a pretty low bar for inspiration. Yeah, yeah. doing the standard tasks. Yeah. yeah. But you're, you're inspirational for, for doing this job just to fix the station, which is, you know, the bare minimum of your job description. He's not going out of his way to like do anything that's, you know, uh, spectacular particularly. No, yeah. that's right. That's a bit, it's a bit strange. Unless it's just normal amongst the engineering team to go, we don't want to work the pylons. The, the pylons just no, there's anything but the pylons yeah they all hate well, probably because they they're probably things that fail quite often we know deep space nine isn't in the best of shapes no. generally although that kind of debt doesn't really come up much in later seasons maybe because they've, op they've optimized everything by this point but it's been well established that it's kind of they've had to basically fix everything yeah. so that's still a factor at this point in time yeah in the second season also, a pylon goes down, and that's one less place for a ship to dock. And I suppose that's not that dissimilar to having to close down a runway at an airport. Pretty much, yeah. That's quite yeah. important for a, a space station, for those to be working. That's yeah. like the main job of the space station is to have ships dock at it. So, yeah. yeah. At least they can't fall out of the sky when dilithium runs out. Exactly. Yeah. It'll just kind of float. It'll affect Quark's business, for sure. Exactly, yeah. He relies on more well, anybody on the promenade, I guess. Yeah. Will be affected, uh, yeah. I, I love this bit, though, where he, he's realizing that they've been scrutinizing his logs on the paradas and that they've even broken into his personal logs. And it's just this one very subtle quick line where he just says, I hope they enjoyed reading the sexy letters to my wife. Oh, my God, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we, we, could have, we could have got some of those logs as well. They could have shown some of them to us, right? Or the vocal versions of the logs. <laughs> <laughs> the Skype ones as well. Um, like um, maybe the written ones, we, there, there might be a thing where Okuda snuck in like a very erotic uh, text log that appears briefly on an LCAR screen that you can't see in the standard definition. Yeah. But maybe if they remaster them in HD, someone's got to write that because people might end up being able to see it. <laughs> so yeah, there's an Okudagram that has O'Brien's uh, 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 sexy uh, text logs to Keiko. Star Trek has never really had a reputation for dealing with the topic of sex all that well. But yeah. I find that this this is actually a pretty well done one. It's just a very subtle line 
it's kind of like this goes on it's there it's normal it's healthy it just it it's a thing um, yeah you know they're and it, married you know it's yeah. just what the married people do it's, yeah it's a nice inclusion that works a lot better than some other things that they've tried in star trek it's really sad because they're either, they're re- it's just a way of saying they've really gone over the top with the um, <laughs> accessing my shizzle. You yeah. know, um, so there's really major stuff going down. Like that's bizarre here. It's really yeah. to sort of increase the stakes, um, and it, which it which it does. Yeah, and you can just imagine them around the table in ops, all the senior officers looking at going, okay. Okay, we, maybe we've gone too far now. But like, we are we going to be able to look at him the same way next time we see him? Oh, we've gone too the, far, but I can't yeah. stop reading. Yeah, is uh, <laughs> pro- probably what the discussion was. Yeah, maybe he just finds that he's he's forever just now going to be working the pylons because they they're just kind of like in more ways than one. You in the face anymore? Um, he's definitely going to be working some kind of pylons. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fortunately, Odo returns. <laughs> to save us from <laughs> yeah. this discussion. And he's like, we have a problem. We need to talk. And O'Brien just explains everything. Your logs are too sexy. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, they've, they've, <laughs> they've, they've been into my logs. They, they know everything I'm up to. And Odo just tells him to lay low whilst he investigates to, to confirm his suspicions. And th- this is just prime Odo. And he obviously... Like even when you kind of when you've seen the end of the episode, you go back and you just know for a fact that Odo obviously at this point knows nothing about this, and he's genuinely on O'Brien's side. Yeah, and it also establishes that obviously something has happened to everybody on the station, as opposed to you know something that's affected the general area or something. Uh, people that are coming from coming into the station don't seem to be affected by it. So yeah, it just adds an extra little factor to to what's happening here for your you know if you're trying to be a bit of a detective yourself about it when you when you're watching this without without really making it any clearer um, what yeah. could be going on yeah and he feels better knowing that he's got an ally and he says he's got a few tricks up his sleeve and he starts constructing some kind of contraption and then we see him in Quark's and Quark comes in and just like the odds are against you O'Brien he's like what are you talking about Quark and he's talking about racquetball. Which is a reference to the time that he was really determined to beat Bashir at Racquetball in Rivals, which was episode 11. Oh, yes, yes. A few episodes just before this. And this is one of the things I really like about season two of DS9 is there seems to be a lot of callbacks to recent previous episodes. You're starting to get that sense of an arc that wouldn't come in fully until the later seasons. But you could see that there was definitely that continuation that they were trying to, to feed in there. Yeah, probably an early example of it. I mean, we don't. There isn't a lot of that in the first two seasons, really. Of yeah, they were trying to get away with it. Was the thing is that Paramount higher ups were dead set against anything. They wanted it to be every episode just standalone, and they were wanting to sort of feed in these these little things. So uh, they they got away with it. Exactly, it kind of yeah. happened, uh, you know, stealthily, really. Um, but and obviously worked great in the end. But it does make it a difficult series to watch if you're used to the episodic you know, Next Generation and Voyager and, and TOS. Although now yeah. it's kind of the norm, isn't it, for these long interconnected seasons that are basically one long story. Although with Strange New Worlds, it's gone back now. Uh, and it feels refreshing now, actually, to go back to, an uh, you know, self-contained episodes. But yeah, there was sort of the early sort of, they're weaving in those early threads of a long-term story on Deep Space Nine here, yeah. Yeah. There's also, like, you start to think that with Quark that there's something up because 
he brings up one of the rules of acquisitions, which is that it's always good to know about new customers before they walk in the door. So he starts asking for about the paradas. But he's when he's asked like which number is it, he's like, oh, one of the high numbers, 194, I think. Like it's not as sure. Like he's normally very on the ball with exactly which rule is which number. So that kind of seems a little off. I did double check though, and I can confirm that it is actually 194 as per the Star Trek Deep Space Nine book, The Ferengi Rules of Acquisition by Ira Stephen Bear. All right. Okay. So um, the consistency is being kept there. Yeah. Although the title is The Ferengi Rule of Acquisition by Quark as told to Ira Stephen Bear. All right. So who knows? Maybe the rules that we've got might just be slightly wrong depending on if Quark messed up yeah, when the- telling the, uh, the writer of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is in the original book. That's just someone uh, third-hand regurgitating it to someone. So Yeah, only so, the head yeah. writer. You know, no big deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We can't rely on that. That's pretty unreliable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we do find that Odo is suddenly in on this, and he's feeling that things are a bit premature to suddenly cancel the peace talks. And so Cisco and Kira and Bashir all suddenly enter. And again, just the timing spot on, just right when they need to be there. So O'Brien throws, I can only describe as some kind of flash grenade, I think is the contraption that's literally up his It's basically what it is, yeah, with some kind of um, disorientating factor to it um, as well. Um, Well, I guess the flash in itself is enough, isn't it, to disorientate you? Um, yeah. But yeah, obviously, perhaps that was the only thing he he could construct that wouldn't raise suspicion with materials, maybe that he's using or or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And as he sort of flees in a big phaser fight, he tries to get to the Rio Grande. He can't beam because he's been locked out. They try and set up a force field, but O'Brien, being O'Brien, decides to raise every force field, so they've got no choice but to shut them all off. Really smart. I love that move. Yeah. And then he runs into Jake who just is like, it'll be okay, just surrender to them and you'll be fine. So he alerts security. And so he's somehow, you know, he's even lost Jake's support. Yeah. Which so clearly the whole, all is lost at this point, really. Yeah. Um, isn't it? Yeah. And then he hides in a Jeffy's tube. And the only thing I can think of as Odo and the security guards are running around is, don't you think security could do with some tricorders? Yeah, they could just scan or just to scan, use the actual sensors yeah. in, in the station. Unless, I mean, O'Brien might have caused the dampening field around it. He, he would know that, that they, would, they would just be able to scan for him. So you could potentially say, well, he would have come up with a way to circumvent that, I guess. Yeah, well, he, he's, he's taken his badge off. But, I mean, there was a lot of people on the station, but only a handful of them are human. Most of them are Bajoran. I'm, always, I'm also not always clear on sometimes the, 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 in Star Trek, they, they say if you just not wear your comm badge, you can't be, set, you can't be detected. And but then you can just detect people generally. So yeah. what? And they can what, pick what up specific line signs. So why can't they just run around just scanning for human life signs? Yeah, I mean, you maybe you could say, well, the com badge means they can precisely see who you are. You know, yeah. uh, or, uh, as a Starfleet officer, that that's why you know that's that, that's a th- a thing that maybe if you take it off and throw it away, it might give you a slight edge in terms of being detected. But yeah, I mean, that's probably. I mean, you've only got. A, detect them anyway as whoever they are and beam them somewhere to capture them so yeah it's a bit they're kind of because of the technology that's established you're kind of a little bit restricted as to how you can sort of have someone escape um from something because there's so much technology that can suck that can prevent you from doing that but i guess because it's chief o'brien 
it makes it a bit more easy to headcanon your way around it and say, well, he probably would have put measures in place to prevent them from just beaming him into somewhere or something. Yeah, yeah. well, he, he does manage to at least beam to the runabout using a, just a cargo transporter. And he's ordered to stand down, but he's already opened all the mooring clamps and disabled the tractor beam. So they start shooting at him. Now, they shoot at him with a green energy beam. Strange. Now, we know the Cardassians don't use green phasers. We do know, at least from the best of both worlds, that the color of the beam is all due to the resonance frequency. Because when they are shooting with modulated phasers, it's cycling through all sorts of different colors. Yeah, yeah, and you haven't really seen Deep Space Nine in sort of battle mode too much, I don't think. Obviously, the pilot episode, a hell of a lot. It's not really until the way of the warrior that we really see it with all phasers firing. And they're not green, any of them. Sometimes they have a slight green and orangey sort of tints or uh, sort of cycle through the beam. But yeah, not like a solid green. Oh, that's like a tractor beam colour almost, isn't it? Yeah, tractor beams are normally blue. I know that in the original series we saw green. Uh, There was, I mean, mostly it's a green flash that fills the screen. But they did have in Wink of the Eye, there's a moment when Kirk is shooting. uh, He's shooting a dealer on the bridge. He misses her. But he's yeah, using yeah. that is a green phaser beam that that is emitted, and and this is certainly strong enough to knock out the shields pretty badly. Yes. So, it, but it's just I I I'm not sure unless it is just down to he'd modified the station somehow. I I, I don't know. Uh, it could just be you know visual glitch. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's just an error. But yeah, yeah. It, it, it stands out when you you kind of know what that stuff should look like. Really, yeah. Yeah, you kind of go back to this episode and it's like, why is that green? What the hell? Yeah. Yeah, it's jarring. Yeah, and he hails Starbase 401, which it's like there's over 400 Starbases now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting confused about the naming convention for those. I mean, Starbase 19, you can go, okay, you know, we've got Deep Space Nine. Okay, Starbase 401. Sounds like... You normally don't go past sort of like sort of 20 and 30, I think, up to this point. No. But then I guess, you know, a Starbase doesn't necessarily have to be a ginormous like Earth space dock. You know, they could be small little outposts. So they might not be. It might not be too difficult to build that volume of star bases. It might not be a number that reflects the actual amount. Could be like you know the, the star system yeah, it's could in, be or to do with the location or direction. Could be the registry num- number. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. A, it is a very very high number. Yeah. Um, based on what we know and what we've heard pre- previously. Yeah. Yeah. He contacts Admiral Rollman, who she was previously was in the third episode of season one. Past prologue, which is the one with the Duras sisters. Oh, wow. Uh, Kira, yeah, Kira contacted her about being unhappy with Cisco's handling of asylum for a Bajoran terrorist. And so it's really nice to see that O'Brien is reaching out to that same admiral, which just ties in everything really nicely. And something that I found out, that's actually the um, widow of Leonard Nimoy. It's Susan Bay. Oh, really? Yeah. The she's ad- the, wow. Yeah, she's the cousin of Michael Bay. And yes, she's Adam Nimoy's stepmother. He's not. Uh, she's not his biological mother because she married Leonard in 1989. But previously, she was also married to John Shuck, who was in Affliction and Divergence as Doctor Antark. He's a Kl- Klingon, yeah. Yeah, he was also the Klingon and, ambassador. Uh, Star Trek Six and Four. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, Star Trek Four and, and Six. Yeah, both of those. He was also Pan. He was a Cardassian in the McKee Part Two, and he was also one of the chorus in uh, the Voyager episode Muse. Wow. So he's kind of stuck within the Star Trek family. 
A very strong Transformers link there. Well, I suppose actually we've already got <laughs> Leonard Nimoy is a pretty strong Transformers link, like in itself. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah another one yeah, there. Yeah, I, I didn't, Bay. I didn't click until recently because he was the one who also publicly announced that Leonard Nimoy passed away. Right. Yeah. So and she was an admiral there. Yeah. I mean, um, they often do try and bring in. Uh, they, they, they did keep consistency with admirals throughout. Yeah. Sort of Deep Space Nine and, and Next Generation. I mean, the Chayev obviously appears quite a lot. In TNG and and Deep Space Nine, um, and Voyager as well with the, the Pathfinder project, they kind of stuck to the same people for that. Admiral Paris and like, um, yeah. Um, so it's good to see. Just it's just I, I like consistency, even with little things like that. You do notice that, yeah. But that's interesting that it's Susan Bay. Yeah, and he he drops out of warp at Parada Four, which is like one of the largest planets in the system with seven moons, and he's basically just trying to find a defensive place to defend against the USS Mekong. But one thing that I found interesting was that the computer suggests to switch to manual navigation because the sensors have become inoperable in the magnetic field of the planet. And I'm thinking, is this vocal instruction automatically turned on when there's only one person piloting the ship? Because that tends to happen a lot, that there's obviously conversation, obviously because it needs to be there to be more entertaining to explain what's going on. Uh, to the viewer but how does that actually work yeah yeah does it just detect there's only one person on board therefore the computer offers that whereas if there's a second person piloting the ship then the computer doesn't need to be as vocal uh, i guess a little bit like going to a friend's house and having turn by turn directions being narrated to you versus having the friend in the car with you giving you directions to where they live yeah perhaps um based on the amount of people actually actively piloting the 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 runabout um, there's extra protocols that are, that are deployed by, by the computer to provide more assistance. Yeah. Um, kind of like airplanes and, and, and stuff like that, I guess. You know, commercial <laughs> yeah. flights with autopilots and yeah. all that stuff. So it has to be provide more assistance. So it's more vocal and, it, you know, perhaps things that you would manage, you'd have someone else manage. It would try and assist you by asking you things. Um, so, yeah, again, headcanning it. Head cannoning it. Um, it, it. Yeah, it's probably like a, a, a particular protocol is, is enabled mm. based on the amount of pilots that are available in, in, in the runabout, and it just is adding more assistance yeah. because there's only O'Brien um, in there. So, yeah, that's probably why that works. Yeah, I just thought it was an interesting observation that I hadn't really thought about before until seeing this episode again. Yeah. But it is something that point. happens quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. But he, he's effectively playing hide-and-seek at this point. He's like, now you see me, now you don't, that kind of stuff. And then finds that they've actually gone to a completely different planet and beamed down. So then he pursues them and beams down himself. And I'm just thinking, well, now who's playing hide-and-seek? You've tried to yes. outdo, and then they've just gone and beamed down somewhere. So you're like, oh, I'm just going to go there. Like, if you're trying to set a trap, oh, Brian, you've fallen for it. Yeah, I mean, it's just like um, you would, you would, you would be suspicious. You'd be like, "Well, I don't want to just beam down, you know. I want to like, you know, scan it and maybe try and get in contact with them first and see, yeah. what, you know, because I'm gonna be like, no, I'm not beaming down there. You, you're clearly gonna capture me or something.' Um, but <laughs> so yeah, there's a little bit of a plot hole, I guess, at that point. But um, yeah, it just, it's just kind of, I guess you could say it's born out of just he really wants to fight. Just maybe not thinking right. He just wants to get to the bottom of it. So he's just gone all out to try and work out what's going on. And fortunately, that does, is a bit, he's risking his own, you know, life potentially to do that. But yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a bit of a funny thing when you think about it a bit. Yeah. To be fair to the writers, they are coming right up to the very end of the episode, though, because there's two paradas down there. 
and Cisco and Kira are there, and he thinks that they're just having an unscheduled negotiation with the rebels. Yeah. Forces them to drop all their weapons, and that's when it's kind of revealed behind the door that there's another O'Brien. And the immediate thought is, is that another one, or is it hit? You know, and so the O'Brien that we've been following is shot, and the other O'Brien walks over to him and just said, he's perfect. He looks just like me. And Kira chimes in with, apparently he thought he was you. And I really like how that is flipped to the point that there's no questioning which is the real one. And we find out that he was a replicant that was triggered to, and basically programmed to trigger a device that would take over him during the peace talks. And so he would end up assassinating an individual or possibly everyone. Yeah. And they'd received a tip off that O'Brien had been kidnapped and replaced, but there was no way to tell whether he was the real one or not because he passed a physical with flying colors. He knew his way around the station. He knew how to fix a pylon. He could do all of this stuff. And wrote sexy letters. Yeah. <laughs> he knew about the sexy letters. Yeah. <laughs> Even if he wasn't the one writing and sending them, he at least knew of them. They probably got him to recite. They would have gotten him to recite them, I think, just to double check. Yeah. But, yeah, the real O'Brien just figures that if he was in that position, he'd be wanting to warn the Paradas that there was something wrong on the station as well. And I, I do love Cisco's line of maybe in a strange sort of way, he was trying to be a hero. Yeah. And as the replicant dies, he's just like, tell Okeiko, I love her. And in fact, it actually cuts off before he finishes that sentence. Yeah. And it's very sad. Yeah. A it, very sad end. Quite abrupt. Because he's as, he's as true to O'Brien as O'Brien is, just until whatever switch is turned on. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't think anybody would have guessed that this that was the whole thing all along, that he was no. actually a replicant. So it's a great, brilliant twist that no one would have seen coming. It wasn't any cheesy aliens took over the station yeah. thing that anybody could have guessed, although you felt that was probably where it was going. But at the same time, it, it kept you engaged because that it wasn't super clear that it was that, and potentially there was suggestions that it might not have been that. So you were kept constantly engaged with trying to figure out what was going on. There was nothing clear that, that, you know, there was no indication as to what it could have been. So again, you really wanted to find it out just as much as O'Brien. And yeah, there was no way. So the first time I watched that, I never thought it was going to be a, 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 he was a replicant that we'd, and it was a great and interesting thing of following the, 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 spending the whole time following the replicant around. Yeah. It's almost like a, a better example of Allegiance from TNG, where we had a replicant Picard on the Enterprise, and we only really got to. There were some very like random scenes where we got to see what the replicant was doing, and to be honest, it was being quite obnoxious, and it was really obvious that it wasn't the real Picard. It's almost like a better version of that episode, where as opposed to seeing the real Picard trying to escape from the from the prison that he was in. It might be even better to focus on the replicant on the Enterprise and have it not be quite so obnoxious. It's almost like that, that was what they thought. You know, let's take what we did in that episode, but have more focus on the actual facsimile yeah. and not have it be so obnoxious and ridiculous that we know it's a facsimile. And by not calling out to where the real O'Brien is ever, it will actually be a more suspenseful episode. And it really, really was. And especially as O'Brien is one of those characters that is the most human, the most down-to-earth, and the most relatable. And the fact that he's as relatable as he is is the thing that I think makes this work so well. If you followed any other character, the, yeah. I don't think you'd be as invested. 
as it is with you don't really have the family elements that were really important as yeah. to make it seem more creepy with Keiko and Molly. They really helped. I mean, you could maybe get away with doing it with Cisco because of Jake. In some ways, like if I, my immediate thought would be maybe Kira would be a good person to have a duplicate of because she's just. I can see how she would be able to. She would like go through the motions of trying to figure things out and being. She's already a kind of a paranoid and sort of aggressive person and stuff like that would probably work. It would That's work. True. For her. But I think O'Brien yeah. was the best. O'Brien was definitely the best character to choose because of the family element. Also because he knows the station so well, so he couldn't really be locked out from anything without him figuring out how to get around that stuff. Yep. And also he's someone that could lay traps and be able to circumvent security measures. Um, whereas, yeah, maybe, a, well, Cisco probably could do that maybe, but Kira wouldn't be able to. Kira, you'd buy into the, the anger and frustration a lot more. Yeah. And Odo is too much of a loner, really, for you to like have a, a establish a series of people being weird with him. I, I think um, it was also smart to keep Odo off the station because otherwise Odo would just have sold everything straight away and been like, "Yeah, exactly, you're fake." <laughs> yeah, 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 and obviously he would have been able to maybe lock O'Brien out from things and not really have him yeah. know and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. so it made sense. I, I really love the yeah. word replicant as well because. The, the writer for this episode had commented about how they didn't want to use the term android because that was too closely related to data. And they didn't want to use clone because it's not really a clone. And so they went with Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and used the term yes. replicant. And everybody was like, yeah, that's fine. That's cool. We'll go with that. And it's also the fact if he was an android, you'd be like, well, someone would have been able to scan for that yeah. and figure out that it's a real, is is a robot, probably even a clone. Because there'd be like memory engrams would be wrong, and like there'd be things that Bashir would be able to work out. Whereas a replicant, you know, potentially has a flesh and blood uh, recreation of someone. Um, basically, like they'd like um, Vija did with Ilea, although that yeah. was acting really weird and stuff, so it wasn't quite the same. But to that degree, although they were well, actually Ilea, they were able to scan her and they could instantly tell. And she had a, a flashing thing in her neck. <laughs> so there wasn't really any mystery there, I guess. But it, but, um, it is a term that. Feels like it fits better for this. You know, you get yes. like just you hear the term yeah. replicant and you feel it is somewhere between the two. Yeah, there isn't any baggage that would end up lowering the impact of how he got away with you know medical scans and uh, things. Um, it's a good option to to not you know because we'd obviously be able to as Star Trek fans would be able to say well they could have scanned that and figured that out. A replicant, we don't really know exactly what that is yeah. apart from Blade Runner, where they're very difficult to detect in Blade Runner. You've got to the Voight Kampf test. You know, which is a very bizarre test that isn't normal, and you know, and we know there's replicants that can get past that. Deckard might be one. Um, so there's a whole sort of definition of what that is established in other things that you could apply here that would make sense as to why he's not been detected. What I would like to do, which I've done for the previous few episodes, is we'll look at the review this episode got from the Beyond the Final Frontier book. Uh, a twist that, that owes a great deal to the works of Philip K. Dick, but is nonetheless a surprise. We see that even a duplicate O'Brien is a man of integrity and determination. The episode ends too quickly, but that's preferable to dragging it out. I agree, it does end very abruptly, but I'm not sure how where else you could go with it. I, I kind of like that it's so concise yeah. at the end. I mean, it, it doesn't linger, it just straight up, here it is. And if anything, it leaves you just wondering more and thinking about it more. There's lots of questions about what would have happened if the replicant didn't die. Maybe it was programmed to just die at some point, like the replicants in Blade Runner. 
Um, I mean, obviously, you know, they didn't necessarily have to shoot to kill him. I think he just gets shot by the phaser on, on kill, um, I think. Yeah. Well, would we have had another Shinzon on our hands? Yeah, exactly. I mean, would he have to hang out? Would it be like Thomas Riker? Would he have to go off and have a life, you know, if he stayed alive? Yeah. Would he be happy with that? Would he feel resentful yeah. towards it? Yeah, because Tom Riker, Shinzon, they both hated the fact that they were the shadow of the person they were designed to replace yeah and um well well not with tom biker he wasn't designed to replace but you know what i mean but there's also the case of Shinzon. yeah the, the, those characters went off and had their own lives um as well to a degree whereas this is literally yeah. up to the point that o'brien you know went to the conference you know has all the memories and feelings of the of actual o'brien so that has a whole different set of weirdness you know that the other thomas Riker and Shinzon didn't have but obviously you know we can't really be having him exist so he had to die, really, and it was very <laughs> yeah. abrupt. But it it didn't. It felt sat. It felt felt perfectly satisfying. I didn't really feel like it was unnecessarily quick ending. I felt like it happened. You know, I think it all played out very well in the end. A brilliant, a really yeah. good episode. You didn't really know where it was going right up until the end. It kind of played on the Star Trek tropes of aliens taking over people and making them act weird. It actually that actually helped that we had that baggage going into this episode because yeah. it made the ending even more of a surprise. So it took advantage of that, which is quite clever. Really good development of O'Brien, even though it isn't actually O'Brien that's developing. It's, it's a replicant, but some of those strands still end up hap- carrying on after this. So, yeah, just a brilliant, um, a, re- a really enjoyable, you know, conspiracy-based episode. And I do like that we find out that the peace talks actually worked well because we do see the Paradas later on throughout Deep Space Nine. They keep popping up. Yeah. Exactly. So obviously something good came out of this, which is kind of nice to think and gives you warm, fuzzy feelings. We talked just before the show that this is one that you revisit quite a lot. It's one that I haven't really revisited in quite some time. Yeah. But whenever you've got a murder mystery type scenario or a conspiracy episode, once you know the outcome, the mystique is gone. Yeah, you can't really get that same suspensefulness when you know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you already know what's happening, but... I must say, going back to this one, very fun. I I really, really liked it. Yeah, I kind of forgotten about, I think, to some extent. But yeah. a really important O'Brien episode, even though actually it doesn't really affect him in a weird way, because it's not O'Brien. <laughs> yes. uh, but still a good O'Brien episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, that wraps up this episode of Long Range Sensors. If you're enjoying the show, then you might also like Short Range Sensors, our free companion series where we bring things a little closer to home to take a look at Star Trek, toys, books, games, and more. Plus, you can also join the crew to support us and get access to Subspace Live, where we hang out with our subscribers to talk about all the latest things going on in the Star Trek universe. To find out all about these great shows and more, head over to longrangesensors.com. And of course, telling a friend or slipping it in amongst the sexy letters to your wife goes a really long way to helping us grow this show. You can find out everything I'm up to online by beaming over to my website at alistairmcfly.com. And I also host Console Shock, a podcast all about modern and retro video games, and you can find that at consoleshock.net. I'm at Alistair McFly on Twitter. I'm at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. And you've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where our pylons are always fully functional.
my pylons are broken. Can you fix them? <laughs> <laughs>